there. I'm going to pray for us and ask God to bless uh, the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, I I feel so inadequate to teach your word, um, especially when we come to a passage like this. Um, so vital for understanding of church. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me as I teach, but also open the eyes of our heart to see your word. I pray if I say anything that is not of you, not of your word, that it would fall away and that your truth would ring true in our hearts and our minds, that we would be transformed as we gaze at the mirror of your word this morning. God, thank you for your Bible. And you've preserved it through the generations that we can gather under it together. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, all right, so this morning we are looking at Nehemiah 8. Um, and Nehemiah 8 uh, is about kind of the, the first church service that has re- is recorded in Scripture as we know it today. So I don't know if you've ever slowed down and thought about why we do this right here. Like why do we gather on the morning of the Sabbath day, um, leave our homes, come here. We're not live streaming, right? We're, we're here, we're gathered together, we worship. We sing some songs out loud, like who does that in your normal work week with other people? It's not a concert. It's not like a Saturday night, right? We're singing songs, and then we hear someone read from the same old book, uh, and then they preach on it for 40 minutes or 45, or if Bill's here, 55. And then, and then afterwards, we, we, we worship again, and then, and then we give money, and we, we serve one another, and then we go to our homes. And then sometimes you eat like half a shot glass of grape juice and a stale saltine cracker, right? Like... Who does, does anyone do that anywhere else in your life? Like, is that a normal thing? Has you ever thought about, like, why do we do this? When we know about communion and baptism there in the New Testament, why, why do we do this thing called church? Why do we sing? Why do we hear the word? Why do we preach? There's a lot of other churches out there now that are doing all kinds of stuff, you know? Um, they're, they're, they're ordering service, however, they're, they're giving away iPads and stuff like that. Like, why do we stay on this old re- ritualistic thing? What is this? Because um, it's not normal, right? And when you look at the New Testament, there's not a whole lot that it says about how we structure uh, Sunday worship. As a matter of fact, it's all assumed. If you look at Acts 2, it's kind of the closest to it, and it says that they gather together day by day in the temple and in their homes. They heard the apostles preaching and the prayers and the breaking of bread, and great grace was on them all, but it doesn't say anything about singing hymns or hearing a sermon or hearing the word read or any of that. Where does it come from? And so hopefully Nehemiah 8 this morning will help shed some light on that. And can I just say, origins are really important. Like understanding where something came from. Um, I remember the first time I understood baptism. And like when I saw it in scripture, I was like, oh my goodness, that's why we do it. I see it now. Or the Lord's Supper. I grew up in the church. I'd been, you know, drinking that grape juice all my life. I had no idea why. I heard it was Jesus' blood. I was like, that's kind of weird, but I'm just do it. And then I saw the Passover meal and how it's been pointed ahead to Christ and how Christ reinstituted it and it's to remember his sacrifice. Like, oh, that's why. That makes sense now. It's the same with church. And so we're going to look at Nehemiah 8 and see that this morning. I'm going to divide this passage into two parts. The first part is going to be 1 through 9, and we're going to look at what they did. This is basically outlining what happened on that, that, that Sunday gathering, that Sabbath gathering. It wasn't a Sunday for them, but that Sabbath gathering. And then the second half we're going to see is what is a result? What two things resulted from them faithfully gathering together to worship? So look, at, look with me in 8.1, and we're actually going to slip up just one phrase uh, to the very end of Nehemiah chapter 7. So just to let you know, I'm going to be reading and then teaching, reading and teaching, like back and forth. We're going to slowly work our way here, so it's going to be a good neck workout, but just wanted to prepare you for that. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So remember, they built the wall, they got it built. 
praise God, and they all left Jerusalem because they'd all come in to build the wall. They left their homes. They all went back home again. The wall is built, but then the seventh month came. So the people of Israel, they were in their towns. They gathered together, 8 verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. I'm going to pause here. That word gathered is the Greek word sunago, okay? And that word sunago uh, means to gather. Well, the noun form of that word is sunago gay. What does that sound like? Sunago gay. Synagogue, right? Sunago gay is the Greek word for synagogue. A synagogue it basically means the gathering of God's people. What does church mean? The gathering of God's people. Thank you. The gathering of God's people. And it's another word, ecclesia. So what we do, the gathering, this church thing that we do has been going on since 400 BC when the people of God, Sunago, they gathered together to hear the word preached on the Sabbath day with God's people. And then the New Testament comes along and Christ says, continue to do this. Meet the, the gathering of God's people as the church. That's what that word gathering means. Look at this next phrase, as one man. Does that mean it was just men? Just men came? No, it means it's a, it's a Hebrew phrase and it means it with one spirit, one purpose. What was their purpose? Let's keep reading. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So don't picture a book, right? They didn't have books back then. It was a scroll. The book of the law means the first five books of the Bible. It was the complete writings of the scripture. They told Ezra to bring the law of God. What was their purpose? Why were they synagoguing together? To hear the word of God. That was their whole one purpose. They wanted to hear the word of God taught by his scribe, Ezra. Let's keep reading. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. So two things here. One, early morning. I looked it up. Like at this time of year, that word phrase means sunrise. It was 6.30 a.m., right? So we've decided we're going to move our services to 6.30. Does that sound good? Um, no, but they gathered. Why? Because they wanted to give the first fruits of their Sabbath day to the Lord. Um, the second thing is this, the seventh month, it says the, um, the first day of the seventh month, which is the month of Tishrei, okay? It's in the Jewish calendar. The seventh month was really important to the Jews. They had seven holy days in the year, and three of the seven were in the seventh month in Tishrei. The first day of the month was the Feast of Trumpets. They would all gather together in one place, and they'd blow a shofar, and they would rejoice, and they basically it was looking ahead to when Christ would return. Right, if you look in Revelation and 1 Thessalonians, when Christ returns for the second time, there's going to be a blast of a trumpet, and then he's going to come. Right? It was what that was looking forward to as a Sabbath day. And then the 10th day of Tishrei was the day of atonement. It was the day where they laid all the sins of Israel on two sacrifices. Right? And then the 15th day was the Feast of Booths, and they all dwelled in booths for a week. And a booth is a tent. So they basically built tents in their yard and lived there instead of their house to remember the wandering in the wilderness and that God brought them into the promised land. But a couple things about um, Sabbaths. So there's two types of Sabbaths. The first is the weekly Sabbath, which happens on what day? Saturday for the Jews. We started doing it on Sunday because Sunday was the day that Christ rose from the dead. We call it the Lord's Day. But they've gathered on Saturday. It was their weekly Sabbath, and they worshiped in their homes, and they rested on that, that day from all their work. Right? The next kind of Sabbath was called a high Sabbath. It was on the holy days. So these seven days, and there were others as well on the calendar, where they would also do Sabbath practices. They would rest. They would read the Bible in their homes. They would sing. They would light candles. And they would rest before the Lord on these 
feast day. So this day, this first day of Tishrei, the seventh month, was a Sabbath day, and they're gathering with the people of God in the morning of the Sabbath. Let's keep reading. They gathered in the first day of the seventh month in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. In the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. All right, so think about it. They, they gathered with the men and the women and all who could understand. Who can understand who's not a man or woman? Dogs? No, the kids, children, right? Any child who was of an age of understanding, it was vital that they be here for this moment. It's one of the reasons why, why we have our middle school and high school kids in here with us. Like we, we intentionally moved our youth group whenever, as soon as we could to the evening so that these students, we want to make sure they're in the gathering. Like they can understand the word of God and they prioritized teaching the word to the students. And it says they were attentive to the book of the law. You get the sense that they're leaned forward. You can hear a pin drop. They are excited and expectant for the word of God. Here's another question. This is just a practical note. What about the ones that couldn't understand? Where were they? Right? They were down at Deborah's house, right? It's CBC Kids, okay? So, like, there's a reason we do kids, right? And we teach them specific things in the Word and have them gather together. One, because we think it's important that, that you can come in here and focus and hear the Word, but also it's important for them to hear in a way that they can understand the Word of God taught to them, right? I think sometimes we have this view of the early church that, like, their three-year-olds didn't run around the room. They sat quiet. Like, no, their three-year-olds would have run around the room, right? That's why it is vital here that they, that they gather together with these people who can understand. And let me just also say, too, I think it is important, sometimes for your young kids, maybe they can't understand, to occasionally gather in here with us to see what we do, to be part of this, to listen. So there's, there's days that my six-year-old understands perfectly what Andrew preaches. Now, there's days where she has no idea. But some days she can. And so let's, let's have this habit of teaching our children. Let's keep going. And Ezra... Oh, no, let me just back up. And beside him, oh, even further, sorry. And Ezra, verse 4, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. You know what that word platform is in Latin? Pulpitum, okay? So Ezra's standing on a pulpit preaching the word of God to everyone who can understand. They're gathered together on the morning of the Sabbath. This is starting to sound familiar a little bit. And there was child care, okay? It's all coming together. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Micaiah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Who are these men? And why are they on the pulpit? Okay? These are the elders of the people of God. We see their names in building of the wall. A lot of them are nobles, people who are in charge. And these are the elders of the people. They were standing for this. I don't know if they did this every time, probably not, but they're standing beside Ezra on this first significant moment to demonstrate that they were with him. They were, they were saying, we will follow this. One commentator said, basically they were showing that it was us first. Let me say, this is vital for leaders of our people that have that posture, that we, me and the elders and the deacons are saying, hey, us first. We're gonna obey first. We're gonna listen first. We're gonna be up in the morning studying and, and up late praying, and we are gonna be seeking to mold our lives around the word of God. Right, that is what a godly leader should be, and that's what they were doing standing beside Ezra. Submission to the word of God always starts with the leaders, the elders of the people. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. So all this is just the setup. He's up on the pulpit. He opens the scroll in the sight of all the people, for he was above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. 
And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Just picture this. These people hadn't been taught the word in I don't know how long. And finally, they have a man there who can teach them, Ezra. And they're all gathered in one place, and he stands up there. He's up on this pulpitum, right, on this platform. And the elders are beside him, and all the people are leaned forward, and they're waiting to hear. And then he opens the scroll, and then it's just this spontaneous moment where everyone just stands. And I can imagine Ezra just with chills going down his back saying, who am I to preach this, to read this word of God to these people? And then he just blesses the Lord. And that word is is singing in prayer. He starts praising God and all the people are praising God and they start saying, amen, amen, right? Just like Arabella right now, they're saying amen, right? And they're lifting their hands in worship, right? This is starting to look like a Pentecostal worship service, right? Like we need to start having our hands raised and amens, Arabella can teach us. Like we, we need this posture in worship. And then as, as if they weren't low enough being under the platform, they hit the ground together. It is this holy moment of reverence where they realize the presence of God. They're about to hear his word and they are undone. That word worship means to prostrate oneself. Let me just say the only posture of the worshiper is a posture of humility. Like we don't come to worship Jesus, our friend, our peer, our buddy, our pal. We come to worship Jesus who is enthroned on high and we are sinners. We are broken in his presence and we, in our hearts, prostrate ourselves before him and let him lift us up to see him hanging on a cross, inviting us into fellowship with him. That is the posture of the worshiper. And that is what they did in this first worship service. So let's keep reading. What happens next? So Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. So these people hadn't heard the word preached or read in forever. They have no idea what Ezra's teaching on. He's trying to read it clearly, but there's questions. There's people popping up with hands everywhere. So they're going out and answering questions to these people because it's vital that they understand it. Verse eight, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. What's the saying there? He preached. He read from the word clearly. He made sure they understood what it said. And then he made sure he gave them the sense of this. What does this mean? And then they understood it. He explained, what does this mean for them? He's preaching the word of God. So do you see it, right? The people of God leaving their homes, gathering together on the morning of a Sabbath to hear the word of God preached from a pulpit by a man who studies scripture, right? And before they preach, there's worship where they raise hands and they sing together before the Lord and they're humble before him and there's childcare, right? Do you see a parallel? Like, is that what we do? Yeah, this didn't, this didn't start, like this didn't start with Martin Luther or the Puritans or the Catholic church. Like this is what the people of God have been doing for 2,500 years. Like, that, that really, this is the first time we see this in the scripture. It's amazing. So I've been explaining what they did. Right? Now I want to explain how they preach, because the main focus here is the preaching of the word. That's why they're there. How did this preaching happen? So we're going to look in verse 8 together and see how this happened. I don't know how long you've been around a church that preaches expository sermons. Okay? And that's what we do here. But expository means to expound something. Expound means to explain it, to take a phrase or a text or something and to continue to explain what that means. And that's what we do here. And and. I just want to say, like, when Andrew and I sat down, um, we were talking about preaching for this church before we planted. We didn't sit down with, like, a list of sermon styles. 
like topical, like film-based, all this stuff, and say, which one do Richmond Hill need? Like, what do they need? Expository, that's it. We're going to preach that. We don't do that. Like, we don't do it because we like doing it. We don't do it because we think it impacts you the most. We preach this way. We don't think God gave us that much say-so. Like, God's word outlines how we preach, and this is how it's written in Ezra 8, verse 8. I mean, Nehemiah 8, verse 8. So there's three steps here to a biblically faithful sermon. The first step is this. They read it clearly. They read it clearly. The first step in a biblically faithful sermon is to explain what the scripture says. Okay, I think if you're like me, sometimes when I gather under the word, I view the scripture reading as kind of the appetizer, right, for the main course of the sermon, right? I'm like, all right, let's get through. I hope it's not a long chapter. It's like, oh, man, they're reading names today. Man, this is kind of boring. You yawn it away, and it's like, what's he going to say? What's he going to say about it? Well, the main course for the people of God is the word of God, right? Like, like this is what we're here to see. So it's vital that as preachers in any church you go to, and, and I think this is important for y'all because a lot of y'all are not going to be here in 10 years. You're going to PCS out of here. You're going to move because of work. And you need to know what to look for in a church. But the main course is the word of God. We need to explain what does this thing say. It doesn't matter what I say. We want to know what does the word of God say to the people of God. So that's the first thing they do. And look at this in verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, right? This is violent. There's two things he's saying here. One is, is that the people saw the word. They built this pulpitum so the people could see the scroll being read. Why? Because they needed to know that this was not Ezra's mind. Ezra wasn't making this stuff up. This wasn't something that he just decided, man, this is what the people need to hear, so I'm going to say this today. No, they wanted to see that these were the words of God. All these people, they didn't have Bibles, they had scrolls that the scribes had. That's all they had. So they needed to see the word with their mouth. That's, that's why we tell you to bring your Bibles to church. Right? We want you to see it in the scriptures. We want you to see it for yourself so you can go home and look back over it and underline and read it day by day. It is vital. The second reason that it's up above them is if the, if the Bible was on a platform above them, where were the people in relation to the Bible? Under it, right? And I think it was a figurative sign that we don't gather above the word of God to interpret it for ourselves and to say what we want. We don't gather beside the word of God to say, this is what I think it means. We gather under the word of God, giving it total authority in our lives. That is the posture of the people of God. So Ezra read the word clearly. The second step in a biblically faithful sermon that we see here in Ezra is in the middle of verse eight. And then they gave the sense. They gave the sense. He explained what it meant. He made sense of what he read, right? I don't know if you've ever read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, like Leviticus, that needs some explaining. He needs to explain what does this mean? I mean, he probably, when he was talking about sacrifices, he was explaining like Passover, that why they killed the lamb, why they put it over the doorpost, what originally happened. He was explaining what it meant. I'm gonna introduce you to two seminary words here, okay? Exegesis and eisegesis. Anybody heard those words before? Exegesis, eisegesis. Okay, if you ever look for a church again or, or hold us up to this, Andrew and I, as we preach, but we, we want to be a church that is exegetical, that we do exegesis. Exegesis is we take a text and we look at it and we pull out what it says. We take it and we study it. So when Andrew and I sit down on Monday morning, mostly Andrew, and he's looking at this, he's not coming in saying, what do God's people need to hear today? He is saying, what does this say? And he's trying to take off his bias, take off his lens and say, what does the text say? That's exegesis. Eisegesis is coming in with an agenda. It is, what do I want to say? 
And how do I find it in this book and preach it to you? How do I take my ideas and opinions and, man, our people really need to hear this today. And let me find the verse and passage and put some stuff together and read this out of the text. I read it in to the text of God. And that's so common. Let me tell you, that's so easy. Like, there are things that this says that I don't want to preach, okay? Like, they're going to make you mad or uncomfortable, and they're going to make me uncomfortable. But if I want to be biblically faithful, just like Ezra does, then I want to preach the word of God and give the sense of it. I want to exegete the text, and that's what we do. We don't preach to say our peace, right? We preach to say God's. Like, we don't preach so that we can open your hearts. We preach so that God can speak to your souls. We don't preach to motivate you to action. We preach to help you get back on the path of following Jesus. Our sermons should always point to Jesus and what God means by this, not what we want it to say. So, second step is explaining what the scripture means. This is the third step in a biblically faithful sermon at the end. So that... They gave the sense so that the purpose of this was so that the people understood the reading. So that the people understood. The, the, the goal here was understanding. The goal of faithful preaching is always understanding. It's not inspiration. Okay? Let me say that again. The goal of faithful preaching is understanding, not inspiration. The inspiration happened. The inspiration happened 2,000 years ago with the prophets and the apostles when God inspired this book. My goal is not to inspire you. It's not to make you feel good. It's not to make you feel motivated. It's not to make you feel sad. Like my goal is to preach this book, to give you understanding so you can know what this says and what this means. And by God's grace, through his Holy Spirit, he speaks to your heart. And he inspires in you something new. Listen, when I first started teaching and preaching, I didn't get this. Like, I loved inspiring people. I filled my talks with jokes, right? And I made people laugh, and I got them motivated. And you know how long Coleman motivation lasted? Till lunch, okay? I said in the first service till dinner, and that's not even true. It lasted till lunch, Sunday, right? And then it was gone like a vapor. But when the word of God grabs hold of someone's mind and soul, you know how long that lasts? It can last a lifetime. You can change someone's life when God grasps, when they grasp the word of God, when they get it. Like when it clicks in place, they say, oh my goodness, this is what this says. This is what this means. I want to follow God's word. Understanding is the goal. So the third step to faithful preaching is to explain how the scripture applies, what it means to you, right? So we have what it says. We have what that means And then now we interpret this for our people. What does this mean today? What what does Nehemiah 8 mean today? What does Ezra 7 mean to God's people today so that you can begin to live your life in conformity to the word of God? So this is what we do. This is the picture of what we do. So this is what I'm expecting, okay? If you have kids, when your kids say, Dad, why don't we go to church? You know, then you're going to say, Son, open with me to Nehemiah 8. Let's pray, right? I want you to do that. I want you to teach your kids and teach those around you why we gather. This is important. We don't need to have kids that are growing up having no idea why we do what we do. Let me tell you, there's a lot of people gathering for, for a lot of different purposes. They can find a group of people to be a part of. They need to know why God's people gather under God's word to sing God's praises together with one another. So let's teach this to ourselves and to our children. So I'm, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit for the second half of this passage. So we looked at what they did. So when God's people gather under his word faithfully, there are two results that we see here in this passage. The first one is open hearts. Look in verse 9 with me, and I'm going to read. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, 
And Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had all understood the words that were declared to them. All right, caveat here on this passage. Men, dads, husbands, do not use this method when your wife or daughter is crying, okay? I've tried it. Don't say, be quiet, right? This day is holy to the Lord. Like, go, go rejoice, right? Doesn't work, but it worked here. And I'm going to tell you why in a second. But first, we, get, we got to deal with this weeping part. These people are weeping. And, and weeping is not just like shedding a tear. They're not sad. They are weeping, like, like uncontrollably crying before the Lord. That's where we see there's always two mo- movements of an open heart. When an open heart hears the word of God, the first movement is brokenness. Always. Always brokenness. If you leave church feeling pretty good about yourself, like pretty affirmed in the way that you were already living, like pretty pumped up, pretty excited about you and who you are as a person, then there's either something wrong with your ears or something wrong with the preacher's mouth. You need to feel good about God. You need to be encouraged by God, but you need to be broken about yourself because whenever we hold our sinful lives up to the glory and the presence and the word of God, we all fall short of the glory of God. And let me tell you, there is not a holy moment in your life, like a, like a good, righteous, walked five ladies across the street, read my Bible this morning, shared the gospel with 20 people. There's not one moment in your life that you could walk out of and into the presence of a holy God and not be incinerated because of your sin, right? And sometimes we get to thinking that like, I had a good week. I'm doing pretty good. And God's word, when preached to our ears, always tells our hearts, no, I love you, but no, God is holy. God is righteous. The word of God is a mirror that that shows us our souls and it cuts right through all of the lies and all the justifications and all the ways that we've woven to justify our lives. It says in Hebrews 4 that it's sharper than what? Two-edged sword. Just runs us through, right? And it pierces the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerns the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. I don't care how loud you were singing, God saw your heart. I don't care how intent you're looking right now, God sees your heart and he pierces it with his word. Will you open your soul to hear the word of God preached? That's the first step. But in Christian life, we're never meant to stay there. On the heels of weeping and brokenness, there is always rejoicing. Look in verse 10. They says, stop your weeping because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The paradox of the gospel is that at the moment we weep, the very second we weep is the moment we can begin rejoicing. Because the moments before brokenness are moments where we're we're numb to our sin. We're living life our way, we're following God our way, and then all of a sudden, we break over our sin. We see God, and in that moment is the moment we're waiting for, the moment we can look up and see Jesus on a cross. I imagine Ezra and Nehemiah were going around and telling the people, guys, I know you're broken. I know you're weeping. I know you see your sin, but look what's coming on day 10. Anybody remember what day 10 of Tishrei was? The day of atonement. You know what the day of atonement was? 
So there they took two perfect sacrifices, two goats, and the priests would lay their hands on the goats' heads and they would confess all the sins of the people, right? I don't know how they did it. I don't know how it didn't take 10 years, but they confessed all the sins of the people. And they would take one goat and they would take it out into the wilderness outside the camp and separate it from the presence of God because it was carrying the sin of the people. And they were saying, this goat is leaving God's presence just like we should. But we get to remain because that goat carried our sin away from God. And then the other goat, they lay their hands on and confess their sin and they kill that goat. They sacrifice it in the temple and they sprinkle the blood before the altar to say that this lamb died instead of us. Blood was spilled that should have been our blood. This was a sacrifice for us. You know what these goats were looking forward to? Jesus on a cross. Hebrews says that he went outside the camp for us so that we could be welcomed in to the presence of God. It says in Revelation 7, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this for us. John's revelation, when God appears to him in a vision, and guys, if you're a believer, you're gonna stand here in this moment one day and after this, I looked, and behold, this is at the end of all things, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes. And then a couple verses later, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and where they come from? And I, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's our story. That's why Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites could go around and say, stop weeping and rejoice, for the joy of the Lord is your strength, because there is a sacrifice. You have taken your sin-stained robe, and you have dipped it into the blood of the Lamb, and you are clean. You are pure. And they didn't have Jesus back then. They were looking ahead to a Savior. We get to look back and see how he did it. We get to see Jesus on a cross who cleanses us pure as snow. And I don't know how we get off on this, but sometimes we get off to thinking that we've got stains on our robe that the blood of Christ can't quite reach. And we get a scrub brush and some grease lightning. We start trying to scrub it off. And there's no amount of scrubbing that you can do, no amount of work, no amount of action that you can do to get rid of the stain of sin on your life. But the second you dip that robe in the blood of the lamb, it's gone. The blood of Jesus is enough for cleansing. And then it says the people made great rejoicing. Great rejoicing. They turned from sorrow to joy because the blood of the sacrifice that was shed for them. There's a second thing, a second result of the word of God preached, which is a zeal for obedience. A zeal for obedience. Look with me in verse 13, Nehemiah 8. On the second day, so we just had the first day, they preached the word. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. We'll pause right here, okay? Ezra just preached a six-hour sermon, okay? I don't know if you saw that, but morning to midday, six hours, right? And I don't, when you preach a six-hour sermon, I've never done it. I imagine next day, Ezra's like, I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. I'm going to take a nap, right? Like that's, he's got his day lined out. This is my Sabbath. That was your Sabbath. This is my Sabbath. He's got his cup of coffee. Here's a knock on the door. And he opens the door and there's all the fathers and all the grandfathers of the people standing out there in front of his door with the scroll to teach us. Teach us the word. We need this. What is this talking about? Let me talk to the men in the room for a second. Those of you that are married, those of you that are fathers, those of you that are grandfathers that carry a spiritual responsibility 
Let me tell you something that's true about 99% of you, okay? Your wife is more godly than you are. Amen? Anybody who's more godly than their wives, don't raise your hand, right? Your wife is more, she knows more Bible than you do. She's read more books about God than you have. She is holier than you. She's taught your kids more scripture than you have. But listen, God, when he looked at your family, didn't pick the best and the brightest for, to lead your family, to take responsibility. He took your dim bulb and stuck it in the socket, okay? Like you, it is your responsibility to be the spiritual leader of the household. It doesn't mean you lead everything. Our wives, my wife is incredibly gifted at teaching my kids, way more than I ever will be. But it is my role before God to make sure that is happening in my home. And it is your role as well. And for some of you men, what that looks like is you coming to your wife and you saying, I don't know what I'm doing, right? I need directions, right? Hard for us to ask directions. I need help. Can you teach me? Can you help me? Can you remind me? Can you teach me how to read the Bible to our kids? Can you teach me how to sing? I can't sing. Can you teach me how to sing? I'll try to sing along. Like, can you teach me how to pray with our kids? How do I lead us? And, and honey, how do I lead you? How do I lead you spiritually? How do I, how do, I do this? Can, you need to lead me in this area. You're way ahead of me. What does this look like for me to take spiritual responsibility for our home? Let me also say, I, I don't know, but it says the heads of father's houses. I imagine in a day like, like this, in a day like today, there are, there are some heads of houses that aren't fathers. There are some houses that are single mothers or the father's died or the father's spiritually unavailable. Um, those of you that are, that are heading the spiritual house, take responsibility. And how did they do that? Did they step up and say, we're going to sing family worship, right? What was their first step? Was it leading? No, it was learning. They went to Ezra. They didn't go to their family and say, I'm going to start leading now. They went to Ezra and they said, hey, teach me. I don't know how to do this. Will you teach me the word? Men, if you're confused, if you, if you don't know how to lead your family, would you get somebody to teach you? Would you ask somebody to come alongside you? Would you ask an older man to coffee to ask for wisdom in parenting? Ladies, would you ask someone to come alongside you to study the word, to know how to raise your kids? Listen, the discipline issues that go on in my house are very complex. Like, I don't understand them. I need Elizabeth to go ask an older woman what to do because I have no idea what to do. Are you asking people and inviting people to counsel you from the word of God? A zeal for obedience. These heads of houses were zealous. They said, we will follow God with our family. Let's keep reading. And they found it written. As they were studying the scripture, they came upon this law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olives, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, that's Joshua, who came after Moses, the son of Nun, to the day of the people of Israel had not done so. For a thousand years, the people of God had not been fully obedient to the Lord. They kept the feast. They'd done the fun parts. They're like, we're going to stay in our houses. Like, I'm not building a tent out of palm branches on my roof for a week. I'm going to stay in my house, right? But these people, in their zeal for obedience, said, no, 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 no. We're going to follow this to the T. There's another thing here. What day is it? that they're reading this. Second day. Does anybody remember what day the Feast of Booths started on? The 15th day. 
15th day, right? They're not supposed to build booths till day 15. But in their zeal to follow the Lord, they're saying, we got to do this. Like, we need to do this right now. It's, there's The sense of this text is an immediacy. They read it, and they went, and they did it. They read it, and they did it. They read it, and they did it. That is the Christian life of obedience. Maybe, maybe year two of this, they waited around until day 15. But this year, they were going to get it right. This year, they were going to obey. This year, they had a zeal to obey the Lord and to follow it all the way through. Do you have a zeal for obedience in your life? There's another thing here, too. Keep reading with me in Nehemiah 8, into that sentence. And so after they did this, after the heads of the Father's houses came to study Scripture, after they went and built tents and were obedient to the Lord, right to the T of his word, it says, and there was very great rejoicing. There's two times this phrase, great rejoicing, is mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 8. The first time is back in 8 verse 12. After they encouraged them that the joy of the Lord is their strength, they, they looked at, to the day of atonement, they said, I'm forgiven, and it says they, were, they made great rejoicing. But in the end of this chapter, it says there was very great rejoicing. Can I tell you, there's incredible joy for the Christian when we see our sin and we look up and we see the Lamb has washed our sins white. It's a beautiful moment of rejoicing, but can I tell you, there is greater joy in the Christian life when you begin to walk in obedience to Jesus. Like when you begin to get up in the morning and day by day go to work and say, I, I am going to obey God and not man. I'm going to live for the pleasure of my king and not for the pleasure of me or my family or my friends or my boss or the culture. I am fully, wholeheartedly imperfectly devoted, a zeal to obey the Lord. When you look at the most joyful people in church history, it's always the same. It's the martyrs. It's the persecuted church. Our family, we get the Voice of the Martyrs magazine and we pray for persecuted churches. And one of the things you see in these stories is these men and pastors and women are getting imprisoned and beaten and tortured and they're, they're seeing their families sometimes killed in front of them. One of the things you see consistently is great rejoicing among these people because they have been obedient to the end. They are living lives all bought in for the Lord, and there is incredible zeal and rejoicing. All the martyrs throughout history, they went to the stake singing, right? It wasn't just because they said, I'm going to sing. It was joy as they obeyed the Lord to the end. And we can experience that same joy as you hear the word preached, as you read it in your homes, as you begin to respond to it with open hearts and walk in a zeal for obedience. Would we be a church like that who's zealous to walk in step with the Lord, walk in step with the Spirit? So in conclusion, this is what God intends of our ecclesia, our synagogue, our gathering, is that we would come together on the Sabbath in the morning faithfully to hear the word of God faithfully preached, to worship God with our hands raised, with amens, right? With our faces to the ground, with a posture of humility that we would put ourselves underneath the word and hear it read clearly and taught clearly and that we would leave with open hearts, broken over our sin but rejoicing in the gospel and going as zealous to obey the truth because we have understood it. We get it and God has changed our hearts. That's God's intention for his church. That's the example he's set and what the church has been doing for 2,500 years. And that's why we gather on Sunday mornings to do. So we're gonna respond with worship to Ezra 8. We're gonna sing a new song together. It's called Behold Him. And as you sing it or just let the words of it wash over you if you don't know it, then I would encourage you, the whole point of this song is for us to slow down, 
to be still and to see Jesus together. So I'd encourage you to do that as we, as we sing with one another. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray before we get back into worship. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sins. You didn't leave us in our weeping. You didn't leave us in our brokenness. But you, as the song's about to say, you walked across the pages of time. You became a man. You went to a manger to die for us, to live for us, to rise again for us so that we could look ahead and look behind and see that there is a lamp. There is one that has died for me, that my, my robes have been washed white in the blood of the lamb. God, I pray that we be a church that is devoted to your word, read and preached and studied and followed. God, I pray that we would not drift away from your scriptures as our final authority. God, let us stay founded on it, Lord. I pray right now as we end this Sabbath morning worship, God, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would behold him seated at the right hand of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is the pinnacle of history into which all things are going. We'd see Jesus, the one we're going to stand before at the end of all things and worship with our faces to the ground. I thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. We pray these things in your name. Amen.